Hi, I'm Edwards Three, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Have you ever tried to read the book of Revelation, that last book of the Bible, also known as the Apocalypse? It can be pretty intimidating. It can be pretty scary. You know, there's a lot of thunder and lightning and fire and plagues. There's curses. There's judgment. There's wrath. It's really intense. But at the same time, if we read it with a truly Catholic lens, we can begin to see many beautiful things being revealed about our Catholic faith. We can learn a lot about the liturgy from the book of Revelation, the splendor of the liturgy in the Mass, a participation in the heavenly liturgy. We could see great theology about the Eucharist. We could see a lot about the sacraments. We see the love of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ the bridegroom, and his love for his bride, the church. There's also a lot of wisdom offered in the book of Revelation about the spiritual battles we face today, but many Catholics just, you know, don't turn to that book. They'll just say, you know, I'll just stay with the Psalms. That's a little bit easier. <laughs> so, but, but I, I want to turn our attention to a certain passage in the book of Revelation because this week the Catholic Church is going to hold up this passage in the liturgy. When we go to Mass, it's going to hold up this passage. It's a very important passage. It's actually a turning point in the book of Revelation, and it's going to tell us a lot about our Catholic faith, something very important about our Catholic faith. But let me bring you into the scene, okay? Uh, the book of Revelation is all about St. John, who is given this vision, this eschatological apocalyptic vision. So he he sees what's happening uh, in heaven. He sees what's happening with uh, some things that are going to be happening in the future. And, and at the climax of this story, kind of the turning point in the story, at the very middle of the book of Revelation, he sees something beautiful. It's like a pause in the midst of all the action. All of a sudden you see something very beautiful. He sees a woman a woman who's clothed with the sun. She's there in heaven. She's clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet and she is crowned with 12 stars. So she's there in radiant royal splendor. And it's just beautiful to behold when you just read the first couple verses of Revelation chapter 12. And then the Bible reveals that she's in labor. She's a pregnant woman, and she's giving birth to a child, and that might make our heart rise. So this is beautiful, the beautiful woman about to give birth to a child, but suddenly something dramatic is introduced into the story. The plot thickens here. All of a sudden we realize there's a dragon figure coming, and the dragon is coming to attack the woman, and he wants to attack the woman and the child she's going to give birth to. So she quickly gives birth to the child, and the child is protected and rescued, and he's caught up to a throne in heaven. And then the dragon is going to be defeated. St. Michael and his angels are going to come and cast down this dragon figure. And the woman herself is going to be protected. She flees to the desert. And there in the desert, she is protected by God and she is nourished by God. Reminiscent of how the Israelites were protected by God in the desert in the Exodus story and nourished by God with the manna in the wilderness. Well, what is this scene all about? Who is this mysterious woman of Revelation chapter 12? Well, many Catholics, maybe even you, would say, oh, that's Mary. Of course, that's the Blessed Virgin Mary, right? She's there in heaven. She's crowned with 12 stars. That's Mary, Queen of heaven and earth. Of course, that's Mary. Maybe you've read some rosary reflections, whether it's online or in a book, or maybe those little pamphlets, you know, they have in the back of church on how to pray the rosary. They give little reflections on the fourth and fifth glorious mystery. 
of the rosary, the mysteries of Mary being assumed into heaven and the mysteries of her being crowned as queen of heaven and earth. And, and, and many times those reflections will quote these Bible passages from Revelation chapter 12 saying, yep, that's Mary. She's up there crowned as queen of heaven and earth. She is assumed clearly she's up in heaven. That's what Revelation 12 is revealing. And in and, and this very week, the Catholic Church is celebrating the feast, the solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and we're preparing our hearts for the next great Marian feast day that comes on August 22nd. Just eight days later, we celebrate the crowning of Mary, Mary's queenship. She's queen of heaven and earth. And again, many Catholics just assume, of course, this must be the Blessed Virgin Mary in Revelation chapter 12. But did you know that almost all biblical scholars who interpret Revelation 12 don't interpret it in this Marian way. They don't think it's about Mary. Did you know that? And I'm not talking about just our Protestant brothers and sisters. Sadly, the vast majority of Catholic biblical scholars over the last 50 plus years, the majority of them have said that this is not primarily about Mary. They say, oh, this is about the people of Israel. That's what the woman is. The woman is a symbol of the people of Israel. The woman is a a symbol of, of the church, but it's not a symbol primarily about Mary. Why did they say that? Is there any grounds for us as Catholics to conclude that this woman must be Mary? Well, in today's podcast, you know what I want to do with you? I'm going to do a little Bible study on the book of Revelation. We usually, we usually don't get to spend as much time on this passage, but uh, this great book, uh, it's an amazing book. But I want to spend a, do a little Bible study on this passage with you to help us have confidence that we can say that this really is about Mary. And, and, and even more than that, once we see that this woman really is the Blessed Virgin Mary, it's going to tell us so much about the relationship God is inviting us to have with her, the gift that she is for our spiritual lives. So maybe if you're someone that loves Mary, you just love learning about Mary, you're, you're going to enjoy what we're going to look at today in Revelation 12. But maybe you're someone who's like, you know, I, I know Mary's important. I know she's very holy, but I don't connect with her. I'm not sure I see why I should have a relationship with her. If you have questions about Mary, this passage is going to be really helpful for you too. Or if you have friends that have questions about Mary, Revelation 12 is a very important passage for us understanding who Mary is and her important role in the Christian life. And that's what we're going to look at in this week's podcast. So welcome to All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sri. And I know we're talking about the apocalypse, but I want to share with you another crisis that's happening in our world right before us. There are many challenges we face in the world, but what I want to share with you is actually a crisis within our own church. It's it's really sad what's happening. It's not this isn't new news. You're you're probably aware of it. You probably have heard various reports, news reports, studies that have been done about what Catholics believe, the average Catholic and what they believe. Sadly, the greatest gift that Jesus gave us the greatest gift he left us after he ascended into heaven. He left us his real presence in the Eucharist. And yet, sadly, most Catholics don't understand this gift. Most Catholics aren't aware of it. They don't believe it. They think the Eucharist is just a symbol or just a a sign of Jesus's love or a remembrance of Jesus. They don't realize it's the real body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. This is the very center of our Catholic faith. And yet, Most Catholics in the United States don't really understand this. They take it for granted. They don't show Christ the worship that is due to him in the Eucharist. They don't receive the amazing love 
that's available to them. This is a great challenge that we face in our world today. And I think you may be aware that the U.S. bishops are preparing for a great Eucharistic revival this next year. They're calling on every diocese and every parish to focus on the Eucharist, catechesis on the Eucharist. We have to learn more about the Eucharist and grow in our devotion to Jesus in the Eucharist. And they're praying for a great revival in Eucharistic love and devotion that, that can spark deeper faith in families and in parishes and in communities. I think it's awesome that they're drawing attention to this. And so to help prepare our hearts in this time of, as we get ready for the Eucharistic revival, there's going to be a big event in, in, in next summer where they're going to have a Eucharistic procession beginning in four different corners of the United States. The monstrance being presented from four different corners in a, a great procession going all across America. And it's going to center in Indianapolis where there'll be a big event. You should go there, check it out. I can't wait to be there next summer. But to prepare our hearts for this great Eucharistic revival, and to help us pass on the faith in the Eucharist to the next generation, whether that's our friends, our roommates, our brothers, our sisters, our children, our grandchildren. Are, are we doing a good job of passing that on? Clearly, that's not happening. Clearly, our faith in the Eucharist in the Catholic Church is, is, is on decline. We need to more effectively pass on the faith of the Eucharist, the very central mystery of our faith. So to help us in this time, I wrote a short little book that just came out. It's called Behold the Lamb of God, 60 Questions and Answers About the Mystery of the Eucharist. It's a very short, very easy to read book, a book a junior high kid could read, a high school kid could read, uh, a book if you've never read much theology. This is a book that you can easily give to people that are just new to the faith. You can give it to someone going through RCAA. You can give it to your children. You can give it to friends. It's with Ascension Press. You can find it at ascensionpress.com. And they made it short and simple. And I, I love this question and answer format because it's not intimidating, but it'll give us the basics we need to know about the Eucharist. Do you know about this great gift? Surely this is the, the most important gift Jesus gave us. I like to say that love wants to be near the one it loves. And Jesus loves us so much. He wanted to stay close to us. So he enters into us at every Holy Communion, at every Mass. And, and, he, and, and even remains close to us outside of Holy Communion in his real presence in all the tabernacles around the world. So in all of our churches and all of our adoration chapels, Jesus is really there. And yet most people aren't even aware of this gift. We need to rekindle our own devotion to Jesus, our own commitment to go see him regularly, to stop by and visit him in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel, to try to receive him more often, not just on Sunday, but if we can, to try to receive him even during the week. Let's enter into this year of preparation for this revival. But are you, are you able to explain the Eucharist to others? Could you explain to someone if they said to you, hey, but it still looks like bread. It tastes like bread. It smells like bread. It feels like bread. According to all of my senses, it's bread. If I put it under a microscope, it still has all the chemical structures of bread. Look, look under the microscope here, you Catholics. It, it, it doesn't, I don't see Jesus cells in here. I don't see supernatural hemoglobin or a divine kidney here. Why do you believe this is really Jesus's body, blood, soul, and divinity? Are you confident that you could explain your faith in the Eucharist to many people today who have a lot of questions or just disbelief? Could you explain the Eucharist? Could you explain not just the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, could you explain the sacrifice of the Mass? 
the Eucharist is sacrifice. Many Catholics, if most Catholics don't know the real presence, I would argue the vast majority of Catholics do not understand the amazing sacrifice of Christ that is made present to us, his sacrifice on the cross, made present to us at every liturgy, so that we can enter into it and we can be changed by his amazing love, fully revealed on the cross. That love is meant to transform our hearts, and that happens, that transformation happens most profoundly in the sacrifice of the Mass. Most Catholics could not articulate that to their friends, to their family members, to their children. We need to get the basics back. Could you explain to somebody the importance of Eucharistic devotion and how to really prepare your heart for every Mass, to prepare your heart to receive Jesus in the Eucharist? This is why I wrote this little book. It's just a very simple 60 questions and answers about the mystery of the Eucharist. It's called Behold the Lamb of God, 60 questions and answers about the mystery of the Eucharist. You can find it at ascensionpress.com. Uh, I believe they have it even in bulk quantities. I forget the exact numbers, but I think if you buy like five or 10, uh, it, there's already discounts on it. Uh, you can give it to family members, friends, use it in your ministry, at your parish. Again, it's at ascensionpress.com. That's ascensionpress.com. But let's turn back to this mysterious passage in the book of Revelation. I, I think this is so important, and it relates in a certain sense to the Eucharist, because the book of Revelation the climax of the book of Revelation comes at Revelation 19 to the end, where there's the great wedding supper of the Lamb, which is all about the Eucharistic feast, the great heavenly liturgy we participate in and Holy Communion. In fact, when we hear those words uh, at Mass, blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. It's echoing what Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 says, blessed are those who are called to the wedding supper of the Lamb, the angel announces. And it's the great mystical wedding feast between Christ and his church. And, and, and when the priest holds up the host and says those words to us in the Mass, it's a reminder that we're entering into that holy banquet, that heavenly banquet, the wedding banquet with the Lamb, our bridegroom, Jesus coming most intimately to us. I like to think about Mary and how much she looked forward to every Eucharist, every Mass, every Holy Communion. In her womb, she carried the Christ child, his very body and blood in her womb for those nine months. And every Holy Communion would be a reunion for her. How beautiful. The same body and blood present in the Eucharist under sacramental signs is, 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 is there with Mary again and is available to you and I. We become... You and me become like like the Blessed Virgin Mary in a sense. Uh, when we receive Holy Communion, we have Christ dwelling within us. It's an amazing gift. But can we really see Mary in the Book of Revelation? How, how do we how do we make sense out of this? How do we explain to someone else this really is Mary? And what does it what does this passage in Revelation twelve tell us about Mary? Well, let, let's just break this down. I want to make this really simple. This is going to be an easy Bible study, but I have to introduce to you the, the three main characters, or at least bring to your mind again the three main characters in the story. There's the woman, the male child, and the dragon. Two of the main characters, all the biblical scholars agree on who they are because it's very explicit. So first of all, you have this male child. The male child is described as someone who is going to rule all nations with a rod of iron, it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. This child will rule all nations with a rod of iron and he'll be caught up on a throne in heaven and protected. Now, you may not catch the illusion that's being made there, but I want you to know that the original readers of the book of Revelation, they would have known that Old Testament story that is being alluded to. And again, we, we might not pick up on it, but man, this is a big allusion to Psalm 
2, verse 9, a great messianic psalm. It's a psalm that gives a prophetic foreshadowing about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the King. The Jews were longing for a new son of David, a new royal son, a king to come, to restore the kingdom, to liberate the people from their enemies. And Psalm 2, verse 9 talks about this anointed king, this anointed one, the Lord's anointed, and he will rule all nations with the rod of iron. That's what it says in Psalm 2, verse 9. The anointed one will rule all nations with a rod of iron. Huh. Well, picture this. If you were to read Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, you know what it says about this child the woman gives birth to, this male child that's born? He will rule all nations with a rod of iron. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> you know, it's clearly explicitly making the connection. Hey, here we go. Who is this male child? It's the fulfillment of Psalm 2, verse 9. In other words, this male child is the Messiah King. This is the long-awaited anointed one who would come to restore the kingdom. Everybody would know who this is. This is Jesus, the Messiah. And and he caught up on a throne. That's Jesus. He, he went up to a throne eventually in heaven. So this is clearly the Messiah King. Now, the second uh, major character that is clearly identified is the dragon. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, it makes it clear, explicit who the dragon is. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Another amazing passage here. Who is the dragon? Well, it makes it clear. This dragon is the ancient serpent from the book of Genesis. The devil first appearing as a serpent there at the fall and in the temptation scene in Genesis 3. And who is this dragon, this ancient serpent? Revelation 12 tells us it's the devil. It's Satan, the great deceiver. So these two characters clearly identified. The male child is the Messiah, fulfilling Psalm 2, verse 9. Who's the dragon? The dragon is Satan, the devil. But who is the woman? There's a lot of debate here. I mentioned to you that some some biblical scholars would say, they almost all say it's not Mary. And then there's two different common interpretations. And I just want you to be aware of what people might say about this passage. That Some people say that, oh, the woman's not Mary. The woman's just a symbol of the New Testament people of God. It's a personification of the church. That's what the woman is. And, you know, they would say that because the woman is, she goes into the desert and she's protected by God and nourished by God. And there's all that Exodus imagery there, which is applied to the church now, right? After Christ has come, after he's died and risen again, who are the people that are protected by God? Who is nourished by God with the new manna, the new the new gift of the bread of life? It's the Eucharist, right? So so they, they would say, oh yeah, see, so this woman is... is is a, a personification of the church, the church that's protected by God in the new covenant era and is nourished by God with the Eucharist. But the only problem is that makes sense out of the latter part of the story, verses uh, 13 through 16, but it doesn't make any sense about, uh, it doesn't make any sense of the first couple verses of the story that tells us about how the woman's going to give birth to the male child. If the woman is only understood as the church, how do we make sense of the first part of the story? The, because the woman gives birth to Christ. The, if the woman's the church, the church doesn't give birth to Jesus. If anything, it's the other way around. Jesus might give birth to the church, but the church doesn't come before Jesus. So it's too limiting to say this woman is just a personification of the church, the people of God in the New Testament. 
On the other hand, some people say, oh, it's a personification of the Old Testament people of God, the people of Israel. That's what the woman is. And there they're focusing on the woman giving birth to the Messiah. And they would say, okay, so the woman's a symbol. It's not Mary. It's just a symbol for the people of Israel and the people of Israel collectively give birth to the Messiah. Okay, maybe there's a sense you could see that. I think that's legitimate. But but once again, to say it's only the Old Testament people of Israel is too limiting because it doesn't make sense out of the second half of the story where the woman goes in the desert, is protected by God and nourished by God with the Eucharist. I mean, how does that relate to the Jewish people? The Jewish people are not protected by God and nourished by God with the Eucharist. No, that's for the Christians. So these two interpretations are too limiting. It doesn't make sense to limit our interpretation to the, of the woman as being just about Old Testament Israel or just about the New Testament church. But here's my question for you. All right, everyone, pay attention. This is your quiz. And I think you're going to pass it with flying colors. But I want to lead up to this question. Make sure you feel the weight of it, because this is a question many biblical scholars won't get right, but I bet you can get this right. Are you ready? Is there a woman who brings together both the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God? Can you think of a certain woman in salvation history, a certain woman in scripture that stands at the hinge between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era? Can you think of a particular woman in the Bible who might be able to represent both the Old Testament people of Israel and the beginning of the New Testament people of God in the church, the Christian people? Can you think of a woman that might be able to do that? <laughs> I bet you can. Her name is Mary. <laughs> And so we have to ask ourselves, why wouldn't we just see this woman as Mary? You know, we could say that she's, the woman is primarily Mary. And as a Jewish woman coming up, born under the law, coming in the Jewish faith, praying at the synagogue, going to the temple, worshiping God, following all of the Jewish laws and practices, she was a Jew. She was part of the people of Israel. She can represent the best of them. But when she gives her yes, her fiat at the Annunciation, she's the first to say yes in the New Covenant era, and she welcomes God into her womb, the Christ child. She becomes the first Christian disciple, the first to say yes, and she remains faithful to that yes all throughout her life. So she represents the Jewish people in her yes, but her yes also represents the first of many yeses of the saints that will follow in the New Christian period. And so I like to think about what one, there is a great biblical Catholic scholar by the name of Andre Foyer who once asked this very important question. He saw this right, right on point. He once asked, is it likely that there would be someone, a Christian in the first century that would write about the mother of the Messiah and not be thinking at all about Mary? <laughs> I mean, think about this. So here's St. John and he's writing the, the, the vision that he receives. He's writing about this dramatic apocalyptic vision about the woman who gives birth to the male child who rules all nations with the rod of iron, fulfilling Psalm 2.9. In other words, he's writing about the woman who gives birth to the anointed king, the Messiah. Is it likely that some Christian writer like St. John in the first century could write about the mother of the Messiah and not be thinking at all about the Blessed Virgin Mary? That just doesn't even seem possible, right? In the first century Jewish world, you talk about the mother Messiah, they're thinking, of course, that's Mary. Now, you could say Mary symbolizes and or represents in some way the, the, the church or represents Israel, but you, you've got to have room for seeing Mary here. It's primarily Mary. 
And, and, and another thing to note is that when you see this woman appear in uh, uh, Mary, she appears in John chapter 19 at the foot of the cross on Good Friday. And what is she called? She's called woman. And what do you see in Revelation 12? In Revelation 12, this feminine figure is called a woman, woman clothed with the sun. And, and, and last thing I would just say, if we interpret the other main characters in Revelation 12 as individuals, we see the male child is not a symbol. The male child is the Messiah, Jesus. The dragon is not just a, a, a pointing to some collective group of evil. No, no, it is pointing to a specific individual, Satan, the devil, that ancient serpent, the deceiver, an individual. So if the other two main characters are understood as individuals and not simply symbols for some larger collective group, then we should also interpret the woman primarily as an individual the mother of the Messiah, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and not simply as a symbol for the people of God. Now, last thing I want to highlight here is what this can tell us about, about Mary. First of all, some people may, may, may read on in the story and then realize that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, it tells us that this woman has other offspring. This is what I'm going to close with here. This woman has other offspring. It says, then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. So this woman has other offspring, other children. Who are those children? Revelation 12, verse 17 makes clear, those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. Who are those people? Those are the Christians. Christian disciples are those who hear the word of God and do it. They keep the commandments of God. They're faithful to the commandments. They, they believe. This is a reference to the Christians. And I think this is the strongest biblical passage that helps us realize that Mary is given to us as our spiritual mother. So if you are a Christian, if you're someone that keeps the commandments of God and you bear testimony to Jesus, then you have Mary as your mother. That's biblical. That's what Revelation 12, 17 is telling us, that this woman who's the mother of the Messiah is also the mother of all Christians. And so we want to honor Mary as our mother. We want to appreciate her as our mother. This is a great gift that Jesus gave us. If the greatest gift he gave us was the gift of himself in the Eucharist, this would be one of the other great gifts he gives, the gift of his own mother who loves us with a mother's heart, who prays for us, so once again, Revelation 12, 17, I want to make sure you follow that. That's clear that this woman has other offspring, spiritual children, who are those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus, the Christians. Revelation 12, 17 reveals clearly Mary is our spiritual mother. We are those faithful disciples who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. And we want to follow Mary. We want to honor her. But we want to draw near to her as our spiritual mother, asking her to pray for us just as any child goes to the mom. Just today, my kids were looking around for mom. Mom was in the chapel praying and they came to me. They had some need. And dad, dad can help them. But when they're hurt or they're sad about something, there's just some connection they want with mom. <laughs> and, and so the children go to the mom and we are spiritual children. And yes, we go to God the Father first and foremost, of course. But it's a great gift that Jesus also gave us Mary as our spiritual mother to turn to her with our needs. 
and she will bring those needs interceding for us before the throne of her son. This is the great gift we celebrate in this week between the Assumption of Mary on August 15th and the great Coronation of Mary, Mary's Queenship that we celebrate on August 22nd. Revelation 12, beautiful book to help us enter in to the mystery of the Assumption and the Coronation by understanding who Mary is, that this really is the woman of the apocalypse, is the Blessed Virgin Mary, and she is given to us as our spiritual mother. Thanks so much for listening. Again, if you want to learn more about that book I mentioned on the Eucharist, uh, you can check it out. It's called Behold the Lamb of God, 60 Questions and Answers About the Mystery of the Eucharist. You can find that at ascensionpress.com. Once again, you can find that book at ascensionpress.com.